0: Hello and welcome back to Temporary Admission, the podcast where we speak to some of the art industry's most influential people to find out who they are, what they've been up to and what's next. Today we're going to be speaking to a friend of mine, Chris Sharp, who just opened a gallery space in LA after moving back from Mexico, where he co-founded gallery space and artist residency, Lulu. Chris, thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. I know it's, it's pretty early in LA compared to here in London, but It's great to have you. And for those of our listeners that don't already know who you are, although I suspect a large number, again, will will also probably know who you are already. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what you've been up to recently?
1: I am Chris Sharp. I'm a former writer, curator, and now gallerist, currently based in Los Angeles. I'm originally from San Francisco, but ended up in New York for my studies in my 20s, and then Paris, where I became I guess a professional arts writer and curator lived for about 10 years working all over and then ended up in Mexico city for about eight years where I opened the space initially with the artist, Martin Soto Clement Lulu, a small project space, um, which I ran for eight years and which is actually still running in an, an a slightly different incarnation, but the spirit is essentially the same. And then I moved to LA at the
0: beginning of the pandemic and opened a gallery called Chris Sharp Gallery. Great. And and are you still active as a creator, or is it something kind of you've taken a little of a back seat on now that you've kind of opened that gallery space?
1: Here I have a show that's about to close in the south of France at a foundation called uh, La Fondation Carmignac on the island of Porquerolles. The show is called La Mer Imaginaire. Wow, and what's that about? Uh, It's about artists in the sea and then another show at the X Museum in Beijing called Particularities, which is a survey of contemporary small-scale painting.
0: Okay, and I know something that we often like to explore on this podcast is kind of how people got into the industry and understanding whether the art world was something that they'd always wanted to work in, because I think there's very much a preconception that uh, a lot of people in the industry have um maybe come from an art background or you know always wanted to work in the art world was this the case for you or i mean tell us a little bit about that and the first time you know you moved to paris and kind of what what was it like when you first moved there i
1: i when i moved to paris actually i i have no real art historical training i wanted to be a novelist and somebody who's kind of interested in critical theory, like Benjamin and those kinds of things, which kind of, I think, led me in part to the art world. Yeah, I'm living in Paris as a student, writing about art. It seemed like a great way to make a living.
0: Okay, and then obviously you moved from, I'm correct, thinking from like Paris over to Mexico, and then it was um, recently in the last few months or so kind of over to LA is that correct yes what what brought you to LA
1: yes my girlfriend's here in Los Angeles and we were doing long distance kind of between Mexico City and LA for a while and then uh the pandemic saw it coming and I was like well I'll spend some time in LA during the pandemic and so we we moved into a
0: one bedroom Ah, and that's where you opened your gallery space in your apartment right
1: We had this idea of just running a space in our living room called Feuilleton, which was dedicated to work on paper. And the the term Feuilleton is... uh, it is basically the 19th century term for the cultural section of a newspaper in France. And it's a the term that's still used, like uh, German newspapers, I think, uh, still use it to kind of indicate the cultural section. But the feuilleton was where like art reviews were published or like serial novels, like a novel by Balzac was published in the feuilleton or as a feuilleton. So it was we like this idea of like something about paper, dedicated to paper. And it seemed like a way to kind of stay in engaged during the pandemic. And it was funny, in the beginning, we'd have like artists, local artists would like drop off the work in front of our door. And it was like that, it was that period when, you know, when we were all still kind of like disinfecting our groceries and wiping down everything. And so they would drop off the work at the front door and then we'd like wave to them from the window and then we'd install it like Alex Olson's show, really beautiful show, works on paper. And then I would document it on my iPhone, which is a decent iPhone. And then my photographer in Mexico would edit the photos. And so it wasn't exactly, it wasn't an online viewing room or any of these were actual exhibitions, but probably the first, I don't know, five or six, nobody really saw or they saw them from a window on the street. And then, of course, in images.
0: That's actually kind of one of those, you know, really nice stories that you hear coming out of lockdown, which is quite inspiring, actually. And then, so how was it then that I know you recently opened your gallery space, Chris Shop Gallery. How was it that you moved from having that space within your home to opening something that, you know, stood alone and and was its own space in its own right?
1: There was an artist I wanted to show um, who had large paintings as well. And at a certain point, I looked for a partner found somebody that fell through and then I was just like you know what and I looked I, I spoke to an artist who had been working at the space and he put me in touch with the landlord and did a visit and it was the first space I looked at and the landlord offered me a really amazing deal on the rent the kind of COVID discount and the rent was already
0: really reasonable and it's right in the middle of the city in mid-city so I took it and are you enjoying in having your own space it's a bit different to kind of I guess what you've been used to for the last few months
1: I am I love it so funny because I I think for for many years I, I was like an independent curator I mean I was I was never employed one could even say employable but I was always an independent curator and I used to kind of marvel at different friends who were curators who had become gallerists like Gregor Podner for instance, he's a friend who was a very active independent curator in Eastern Europe. And then he opened a gallery. And I always saw that transition or shift as like some kind of like, you know, kind of terrifying betrayal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. I mean, I think opening Lulu in Mexico City gave me a sense of what it means to have your own program. I mean, I always thought of Lulu as kind of a linear group exhibition. I think there are many curators who work in institutions who actually don't get to develop programs. I mean, so if you work at the MoMA, for instance, you get to do a show every four years, right? Or, I mean, I think there's a few positions where you're kind of the director and chief curator, like the Renaissance Society in Chicago, or Malmo Kunsthal or... I don't know, the Hill in in London, where you kind of occupy both positions and you actually do develop a program. But otherwise, I think it's it's hard, you know, develop this kind of linear identity, which is something you can do with the gallery. You know, a gallery provides almost unique opportunity to really build something up through time.
0: For sure, for sure. But how is it that you choose the artists that you want to feature within your space? Is it is it artists that, for example, you have, you know, long-standing relationships with? Are they local to LA? Or, you know, tell us a little bit more about kind of that process for you.
1: Well, I mean it's informed in large part by like my thinking, which I developed from running Lulu. Lulu was very much a response I guess, to being an American who had lived in Paris and then Mexico City and kind of encountered these different cultural prejudices, which in some cases are really productive and others just feel kind of unnecessarily rigid. And so in Mexico City, I just opened the space in the beginning with, with Martin and we were just like doing what we wanted. And then it became clear and clearer to me that there was this kind of orthodoxy in Mexico where everything had to be kind of this politically engaged conceptualism. And I found myself like resisting or pushing up against that, which really moved me towards an emphasis on painting. There's not much, I mean, things have changed since we opened for sure. But at the time, like nobody was showing painting in Mexico, at least no mainstream art spaces. And there was just, it was kind of like dogged by this assumption that it was somehow just completely complicit with the neoliberal art market and devoid of kind of any political content or agency which i think anyone who spends a lot of time thinking about or looking at painting would disagree with it's one of the most complex if not the most complex art medium you know maybe after film i don't know and so that that moved me towards an emphasis really on not just painting but on like medium specific practices practices which are really invested in their own histories and and which think plastically like so sculpture as sculpture or photography somebody like johan lempert who's really thinking about the history of modernist photography and its relationship to science and you know scientific taxonomy and all of these different things. So, yeah, it kind of pushed me in that direction. And that's something I think I've carried over into the, the gallery. One of my motivations was that there are these great artists here, like Tom Allen or Tyler Vlahovitch who are really important and really kind of beloved by the local community, but don't have a gallery or any visibility in Los Angeles. It was like, a, you know, wanting to address that. And then also that thinking, you know, like I'm, I'm working with Lin-Mei Saeed, this amazing German sculptor who's an animal activist, but whose work is formally and plastically super interesting. You know, it's just like one of those positions where there's no division between form and content or politics and material and form and so on and so forth. So somebody like Lynn or another great artist who I'm about to show at FIAC, uh, her name is Isabel Nino de Buen. She's a Mexican sculptor who I've been working with for years now in Mexico and other places, who has really developed into this amazing sculptor. And she's somebody who's really thinking about the history of sculpture and its relationship to architecture and so many different things. I mean, I guess I'm interested in world building, but in, in some ways, you know, it's funny. I think I'm just like, I'm like a big old modernist in the sense that I'm less interested in kind of new media not that i'm against it necessarily but it's more about i don't know the 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 plastic quality how sophisticated it is i'm it's got to be like a fully integrated practice it can't just be like somebody who's interested in
0: like 3d printing yeah i get that but what is it exactly and you you mentioned the term quite a lot and i suspect a lot of our listeners including myself also would probably want to know a little bit more about what it is you you mean by the term plastically exactly
1: that's a good question. So it, I'm basically referring to this 19th century distinction where they would say, you know, les arts plastiques or the plastic arts to distinguish them from dancing or theater. So it was like visual art. I guess nowadays we would say visual art, but I think um, later in America, I don't know, in the first half of the century, there was this emphasis on like the plastic quality. So like the formal qualities of a painting or a sculpture, or the fact that it had a kind of object hood or volume, body, and these kinds of things. It's a term which has gone out of fashion. It's always been useful for me. I mean, I think it went out of fashion because with the emergence of historical conceptualism, I think there was a move away from this belief that art had to be plastic without a kind of physical counterpart. And I think that the distinction just kind of became obsolete. But I w- I disagree with that, obviously.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's clear that, you know, since the pandemic um, kind of began and you moved over to L.A. and you've kind of opened your new space, there's been a lot of change for you. But one thing that I'd be particularly interested to know a little bit more about is Lulu, and with the evolution of Lulu into a non-profit satellite of X Museum, and a in partnership with Michael, how do Lulu and your gallery relate, or, or differentiate, as it were?
1: Mm. Um you know, to be honest, I'm still figuring that out. Just to give you a bit of background about that, when I announced the opening of my gallery, I was actually ready to close Lulu. And then one of my biggest supporters and collectors, Michael Shufu Wong, who's co-founder of the X Museum in Beijing, approached me about keeping it going and transforming it into a a kind of satellite of the X Museum with me as artistic director. And we discussed it for a while. And I I realized that it was actually a nice idea rather than doing six shows a year in art fairs, because we did do art fairs mostly to kind of help artists and develop or keep some kind of economy going for Lulu in order to support it. So moving away from all that and just doing four shows a year, three of which would be organized by me and one organized by the X Museum in Beijing. And I have
0: carte blanche to show whatever I want. It kind of sounds like the best of both worlds for you.
1: I don't know. It's, it's it's like a complex decision because you know on the one hand it was liberating in that I didn't have to think about uh, the commercial viability. I mean, not that it was ever really a consideration, but now it was like a total non consideration doing a show at Lulu. And then secondly, it was a nice way to kind of maintain some kind of link to myself as a curator while running a more conventional gallery space. Those are a couple of distinctions. I mean, the gallery, unlike Lulu, I mean, the way Lulu worked often was I would either show a significant historical position, somebody like like Nina Cannell, Actually, when I showed Nina Cannell, she wasn't obviously where she is now. Or Ian Kerr, or Manfred Pernice, or B. Wirtz. All these great sculptors alongside like different emerging painters. And when we showed emerging painters, the idea was to do like a solo show. And then if they didn't have a gallery, to do a solo booth with them. And hopefully get them a gallery. So... And those artists included everyone from uh, Elisa Niesenbaum to Amber Wellman to Daniel Rios Rodriguez to numerous others. And now with the gallery, I have a roster are artists I like want to work with and follow and help develop long-term careers but I still still want to think about the gallery as a kind of curatorial space It's, it's important to me that the shows are really beautiful that the artists can be proud of the show and that they feel like their work is presented in the best possible way and that's you know that's kind of a given but it's not
0: yeah and you say that but a lot of galleries as well they have that commercial aspect that is very much at the forefront which you know can mean that curatorially, the exhibitions maybe aren't as strong as they could be because they've got to face, you know, monetization as a primary objective rather than um, anything else. So I think that's that's really nice to hear, actually. Yeah. I mean, it also depends like a gallery in New York or even
1: London where rents are so high, whereas I think somewhere like Los Angeles, I mean, it's still not a, a cheap city, but compared to New York, it's, you know, it's it's really inexpensive. So it's It's not like you have to fill every square foot of your space in order to make the money to pay for that space.
0: Yeah, and just thinking a little bit more about um, kind of different destinations or, or places where galleries are set up, have you got any, you know, preferred destinations or any kind of places you would recommend to our listeners that they must check out at the moment?
1: Yeah, I... I don't know. It's funny. Yeah. With with the pandemic, I think one of the things that happened, and I wonder if this will stay this way, but it's this idea of like the local and the regional over the international. I felt like it was funny at the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, I was dating someone in Los Angeles, working a lot in Europe and running a space in Mexico City. I was like, Traveling nonstop, and sometimes I would be on the road for like two to three months at a time. It was funny; I was always getting sick because I don't think you can travel like that and not get sick. There's just no way. It Doesn't matter how well you try and eat. And I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, my dad was like, "Well, son, you really needed a break." So um, he he saw it as a blessing for me. But and I think it was kind of, in some ways, a blessing for the art world to kind of like fall back upon. And think about the local and the regional, and that I think that informed my decision as well. I was just like, because I was spending so much time in LA, and it's just like it's it's such an amazing art scene. I mean, they have these great art schools, and I was and I would do studio visits, and I would always be like, oh, I'd love to show this artist at Lulu. But the thing with Lulu, which I always had to be, and I still will always be mindful about is being nationalistic, right? Or, or jingoistic. I think Mexicans are are very sensitive about this. I think all people are, but Mexicans, especially vis-a-vis America, which is basically, you know, their imperialist neighbor. So it was like, oh, I had to just be mindful about, you know, showing artists from all over the world, not just Americans. And that's, that's a kind of luxury I think you have as being a gallerist in America. You don't have to think about it. And the thing is, is like I would be in L.A. and there was I could there were so many great artists here that I could do like two years of programming of artists based in L.A. And obviously I couldn't do that. But that's something I can do here. So, I mean, this isn't really answering
0: your question. (laughs) It's okay, Don't worry.
1: I mean, I think Paris is is pretty exciting at the moment.
0: Oh, of course. And you're going to FIAC, right?
1: Yeah. But I think the art scene has really developed in a way that it it was still pretty local when I was there. You know, and Mexico City is getting more and more interesting. Those are two nice scenes. Of course, New York is always rich, but... You know, it's hard to say. I think I don't know. I I would really like encourage people to explore like their own local scene because there there is like great art everywhere, but especially in places like London.
0: God, I know there seems to be so much going on at London at the moment. I can't seem to keep up with the sheer volume of exhibitions that seem to be heading my way. Um, But I guess that's a that's a good problem to have. But I mean, we've we've discussed a lot there, so I'm conscious. I don't want to keep you for too long it's it's still early in la and you've probably got a lot to do but one last thing it would be interesting to just quickly chat about is understanding you know what you what you got on at the moment and what's next
1: the next thing is fiac in paris i'm going to be showing this mexican sculptor i mentioned isabel Nino-Lubin. she's from mexico city but lives in hanover so she's somebody who was educated in germany and then basically ended up staying there so i'm really excited to show a new body of work by her and then after that at the gallery, I'm going to do a, sh- a solo of Tom Allen, who's one of the reasons I opened the gallery. He's a great local painter who recently had a show at Approach in London. And then then after that, uh, we'll do um, Nada Miami with a young Mexican-American artist named Edgar Ramirez, who's based here in Los Angeles. And then at the gallery, Aaron Gilbert, a great painter from New York who recently had a beautiful show at PPOW with Martin Wong, really special painter. I mean, all sorts of fun stuff.
0: God, I you're not exhausted. That sounds like you've got a lot on your plate. And I think especially with all the art fairs coming back at the moment, seems like you're you're just gonna be crazy busy from now until the end of the year.
1: I feel like it's all coming back um, with a vengeance, which is fun because I mean, the funnest part for me and I think a lot of galleries and professionals is that I get to see my friends. I mean, a lot of my friends aren't in L.A. I mean, I have friends in L.A., but a lot of my colleagues and friends are in New York, Tokyo,
0: Paris, kind of all over. And the only times we get to see each other are at these trade fairs. It feels like everyone's just out and about now and kind of back at it, which is it's really nice to see, I think. And, you know, I'm very conscious of time and I won't hold you for too long. So. You know, Chris, thanks for coming on today and chatting to us. It's been great to hear what you've been up to and kind of what's next for you. My pleasure. Fantastic. Well, that just about concludes us for another episode of Temporary Admission. Make sure to tune back in in about a week or so where we will be chatting all things digital and NFTs. Until then, stay safe, speak soon.